Well, greetings and salutations, everybody. Uh, for those of you watching around the world, welcome to the international headquarters of Grace Fellowship located in Prosser, Washington. I'll be your speaker today. Uh, this is the second of three sermons in this mini, mini series on spiritual warfare. Uh, and today our focus is going to be on the dangers, the, the pitfalls of an improper understanding of spiritual warfare. So our subtitle is, It Isn't What It Isn't. We need to be sure we can tell the difference what spiritual warfare is and what it is not. Because there is an incredible amount of bad information, bad teaching, uh, all around this topic. So we're going to kind of discuss the central traits of false teaching so we know what to look out for. So we probably ought to start with prayer before we jump in with that. Gracious God, what a joy, what a privilege it is to gather together this morning. Um, we thank you for the, be the beautiful day, for the um, what feels like an even more beautiful spring this year, coming after this long, dark year and, and recent snow on the ground, and it's just it's beautiful to see sunshine and blue sky, and we are grateful for that symbol of your ongoing love and compassion for us. Lord, I pray as we go through uh, your word this morning, looking at these particular topics and themes, Lord, that you give us wisdom, you give us discernment, um, you give us a greater desire for truth. Uh, you cause us to look at your word and see what is true and what is not. Um, that we gain a greater desire for your truth over our own experience and emotion or that of someone else, um, and just a greater desire to trust in your word in all things. So, Lord, open our hearts and minds this morning to hear what you have for us, um, and we're grateful to be able to share your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. So before we jump in, we're just going to recap briefly what we learned last week to kind of help, you know, set the mood, give us a common starting point. Um, and for us, hopefully this doesn't come as a, as a shock to you all, but the starting point for this and all topics for us is the Word of God. Uh, this is our authority. We place a high value on the Word of God. Everything we know, everything we think we know, should be verified by Scripture. Not the other way around, as we will see, where we try to find verses or even a word or two here or there that supports what it is we're doing. So we know, we learned last week, that the chief enemy of God is a character we've come to call Satan, or the devil. Uh, the word Satan is a Hebrew word, which means adversary. We get the word devil from a Greek word diabolos, which means slanderer or accuser. This starts to give us a bigger picture of who this Satan character really is. But we know he's also referred to as the tempter, the, the serpent, uh, prince of the power of the air, liar of liars, um, and a number of other less than pleasant nicknames. So we know that Satan was an angel, possibly, probably a, a, a guardian cherub, um, which, again, we don't know a whole lot about that. Is that a, a class of angel, a type of angel? Is that just an, an assigned duty? We're just not given a lot of information. But by piecing together the story through progressive revelation of Scripture, things we can learn over the course of Scripture, we know that Satan had a pride issue. He wanted to be like God. And his pride caused him to sin against God. And we're pretty sure he must have been a pretty good salesman because he convinced a bunch of other angels to go with him, possibly up to a third or so of the angels to follow him in rebellion. And of course, this angelic insurrection was quickly put down by an almighty God. And so the devil and his followers were cast out of heaven. And from that time to this time, they have made it their singular purpose to thwart the will of God to oppose his every work. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are part of that work. So we discussed that there are two main errors that are often committed in our spiritual battle. One is to overstate the power and influence of the devil and his demons, and the other is to understate the power and influence of the devil and his demons. Both, it turns out, are a problem. But it is interesting to observe, just from a larger helicopter kind of viewpoint, that as a rule, our culture, our secular culture, tends to err on the understate side, even going as far as to deny the existence of evil. But in the church, or at least segments within the church, there is a tendency to overstate 
the power of the devil and to fixate on things demonic, where they actually make it a focus of their ministry. And that's kind of more what we're going to look at today. So from a cultural perspective, I find this really interesting that on the whole, we tend to understate the influence of the devil and his demons. Perhaps the most popular understanding in our culture today is that evil doesn't really exist. It's just that sometimes, you know, people do bad things. Or they'll say something like this. Evil is just a social construct. This is an article from 2012. The second thing to keep in mind when thinking about evil is that it is a socially constructed concept, different for each culture and society in which it exists. Various cultures have different ideas and beliefs about what constitutes evil. What is evil to some may well be commonplace for others. The reason for this is that evil is a subjectively formed social concept. Depending on a certain society's beliefs and morals, ideas about evil are bound to be different from that of another society. You saw an example of this just the last week or so when President Biden was talking about the, the Uyghurs and how China was mistreating them. He said, well, they just have a different culture than we do. So evil is just a social construct. Every culture is free to make up their own rules about what is right or wrong or good or evil. And the obvious implication for us is we can't really judge anybody else for right or wrong or good or evil. Everybody has their own rules. Now, a good Christian apologist, I think, would would knock this argument down in a hurry. They might say something like, well, just because there are cultural differences in certain areas doesn't mean there are no absolute standards. For example, as far as I know, there is no culture anywhere in the world where it would be morally acceptable for people to hunt small children for sport. That just wouldn't be allowed. So there is a standard there somewhere. We can get to a point where we're all in agreement saying, yeah, that's probably not a good thing. That's just a bad thing. But we try to remove the devil and his demons by suggesting that it's all just personal choice. And there is personal choice involved, to be sure. We freely choose to sin, although the unbeliever would likely not call it sin. But we choose to disobey the will of God. And when we do, and this applies to both the believer and the unbeliever, when we sin, Ephesians 4 says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So apparently, when we're not truthful, when we stay angry at friends or family or neighbors, when we sin, our sin creates opportunity for the devil. Or some translations say, give the devil a foothold. I think that's a good picture. That's a good picture. So what happens is we we have this small sin that we find, you know, acceptable, and that leads us to a bigger sin, which becomes acceptable. And then that bigger sin leads to an even bigger sin, which we find acceptable. And the bigger sin leads to an even bigger sin, which we find acceptable. And soon a culture starts to decide that nothing is evil. And therefore, there is no devil. Now, what I find fascinating about this is that even as we deny the existence of evil on a cultural basis, we are fascinated by the supernatural horror movies and and stories of possession and haunted houses and ghost hunters and we pay money to be scared we pay money to be afraid of things we don't think exist some of you may remember that in 1973 there was a movie released called the exorcist it was a story of demonic possession i was not quite 10 years old at the time but i remember hearing or reading news stories or probably hearing a few Southern Baptist sermons about the the visceral, physical impact this movie was having on the audience. There were reports of heart attacks, miscarriages, fainting, vomiting. One psychiatric journal wrote about something called cinematic neurosis that was triggered by this film. Several cities in the U.S. sought to ban the film outright. And yet... It's the highest grossing R-rated film from 1973 to 2017. It is still hailed by the National Film Registry as being culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. So we reject the idea of evil, but we make this a cultural phenomenon? Why is that? How is that? Well, I think it's because God has placed knowledge about himself in every heart. And we try to do not deny him logically, 
deny his overwhelming goodness as the only buffer against evil, but we're still drawn spiritually. We still understand good versus evil. And so the devil fights back. He keeps us off balance. He tries to move us away from Jesus. And so what happens over time, over the centuries, in our culture certainly, is the church gets caught up in these cultural representations of evil. We start to be impacted and influenced by cultural definitions of evil. So that when I mention spiritual warfare today, for many of you, many of you think of things like binding Satan. Praying a hedge of thorns, identifying and naming demons, praying against territorial demons, exercising demons from non-Christians and Christians and, and even inanimate objects like carburetors. Pleading the blood of Jesus, striking down territorial spirits. We rebuke Satan himself. These are all now expected normal forms of spiritual warfare. They're, they're, they're normalized in the Christian community. Because we've accepted the, the cultural view of spiritual warfare, which is more often than not non-biblical, so now we've developed non-biblical strategies to deal with a non-biblical understanding of scriptural warfare. And we're a mess. So here's one of the big ideas. Here's one of the takeaways from today. When we adopt a non-biblical view or understanding of spiritual warfare, we end up spending our time and energy fighting the wrong battle. It's a trap. It's a distraction. It's sleight of hand. The old bait and switch. The devil wants to keep us busy over here fighting nonsense while he's over here being smooth and crafty. So the devil gets us to buy into this idea that we need to fight for control over him or for demons or specific issues or territory at the expense of focusing on the truth of God's word. And you've got to admit, as strategies go, this is pretty clever. This is a clever, strategic move. It's, it's genius, really. When you think about when we get into, see, see how this leads into Ephesians? It's just perfect. When we get to Ephesians, it says, put on the whole armor of God so that we can stand against this physical and spiritual onslaught that's coming our way. There will be hordes of demons charging us from every direction. Except that's not what it says. It says, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you, you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, interestingly, that word that's translated schemes can also be translated as craftiness. You know, like with Eve, where the serpent was crafty. He did not overpower her. He did not possess her. He cunningly craftily lured her into sin. But let's not minimize what happened there. I mean, we have to acknowledge the devil's got game. Consider that Eve did not yet have a sin nature at this point. She didn't have the natural inclination towards disobeying God that we all have. She was living in paradise. She had a daily personal relationship with God himself, and she was still tempted and lured away. So we shouldn't under, un, underestimate Satan's skill set. But we should make sure we're fighting the right fight. That we're not expending our energy and our focus and our time on the wrong things. Which I fear is where much of the church is heading now. Because we're being lured away from truth. So we're going to look at a few of the examples that I mentioned earlier in that long list of spiritual warfare things. And I will say up front, it's not my intention to step on any toes or call anyone out if you participated in any of those things. But we're fighting for truth and not feelings. So if you get upset, you can yell at me, it's okay, as long as you hear the truth. So let's start with this big idea, the one that we hear probably more frequently, the idea of binding Satan. The idea here is that we can pray that Satan will be bound or restricted from certain people that we're praying for, or um, we bind Satan to stay away from the church service on Sunday, or uh, we even bind him from a certain geographical area. We want, we want to uh, reach our neighbors for Jesus, so we bind Satan to stay away from our neighbors. And it might come in the form of a prayer to God, God, I ask you to bind Satan from, or we can take the direct approach and we can bind Satan ourselves. TV evangelist Robert Tilton some of you may remember Robert from the golden days of televangelism, 
Robert Tilton once prayed on his TV show, Satan, you demonic spirit of AIDS, I bind you. You demon spirits of cancer, arthritis, infection, migraines, pain, come out of that body. Come out of that child or man. Satan, I bind you. You nicotine spirits, I bind you. And it kind of goes on and on like that. This has become quite common, quite popular in Christian circles. Even once quite conservative people like Bill Gothard advocates binding Satan and naming the blood of Jesus. Neil Anderson writes about it in his books, Pat Robertson, along with lots and lots of others. So on what basis do they encourage this practice of Satan binding? Well, they get it from a couple of different verses. Matthew 12.29, Matthew 16.19, and Matthew 18.18. I'm just going to look at one of these three, but my comments will apply to all three of them, and it is this. Context matters. Context matters. So when you look at Matthew 16, the story kind of starts in verse 13, really. Jesus has been removed from his disciples, and he now rejoins them. And he asks them, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they give him a couple different answers, you may remember. And finally he says, okay, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then we read, Jesus answered him, Peter, saying, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now you notice it says that Jesus answered him. This was directed to Peter. And then he says, just to be sure we get it, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, Peter, Jesus acknowledges that Peter has an earthly biological father named Jonah, but says it wasn't your earthly father who revealed to you who I am. This came directly from my father. Peter, you're hearing the Lord correctly. You're listening to the Lord correctly. So he goes on to say, I tell you, Peter, specifically Peter, on this rock I will build my church. Now, if you're familiar with this passage at all, you know there's a lot of stuff swirling around this. What, what does this mean exactly? Peter is the rock on which the church is going to be built? Or, or is, it, is that Peter himself or, or Peter and this confession he's just made about who Jesus is? I mean, the Catholics think this means that Peter was the first pope. So there, there's a lot of different theories about this. But here's what we know for sure. Peter is going to be foundational to the start of the church as will the other apostles. They're going to have roles to play. But it's Peter who first makes the confession. It's Peter who's the first to speak on the day of Pentecost. So Christ says, Peter, you're going to help build this church, and the gates of hell, literally here, the gates of death will not prevail against it. Now, I don't want to get too far off into rabbit trails here because it'd be really easy to do. But this context is pretty clear. Jesus has, has identified Peter and his confession as being foundational for the start of the church. Even the death of Jesus which Jesus knows is coming, they don't. Even the death of Jesus and the death of the apostles won't stop the spread, the growth of the church. So when Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys to the kingdom, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven, it relates to the church. That's the context. We cannot and should not assume that Jesus has just changed topics from the church to how Peter should deal with Satan. Now, at the time, the the terms here that are translated as binding and loosing, they were terms that were commonly used to describe what was forbidden and what was allowed in Jewish culture. The rabbis had some authority to decide what was bound, what was forbidden, and what was loose, what was acceptable for for the Jews to do. So, in context of the church, it seems Jesus is telling Peter that he and the the apostles are going to be responsible, to some degree, to establish church structure and, and, and dis- discipline, and even make some doctrinal decisions, which they do. We just talked about this in Galatians, about circumcision. Some of the people in Jerusalem were saying Gentiles have to be circumcised. Paul is saying, no, they don't. He went to Jerusalem, met with these people, and they all decided that circumcision is not a requirement. It is bound. It's not a requirement for being a Christian. So nowhere here is it stated, implied, or inferred that Peter has now been bestowed some magical power that limits the comings and goings of Satan. 
saying I bind you just because we find the words in the Bible doesn't necessarily mean anything. It doesn't provide greater power or authority. Besides which, other scripture says Satan is still roaming around like a lion. So, if we have all these binding prayers going on, and if they're so effective and they're so necessary to control Satan, why isn't Satan sitting in some kind of a spiritual zoo somewhere, all bound and caged, locked up? And you'll see much the same thing in the other Matthew verses. The context does not say what they're trying to make it say. And you'll notice that when we hear these false teachers talk about the binding part, you never hear, hear them talk about the loosing part, which is part of the same verse. Because the loosing part doesn't quite fit the story they're trying to tell like the binding part does. They conveniently leave out the second half of this section. I mean, if we're binding Satan, but he's still roaming around, then there have to be people out there loosing him. More importantly, there's not a single biblical account of a prophet, an apostle, a disciple, or even Jesus binding Satan. If it is so powerful as we're taught, why is it never mentioned in Scripture? The only time the Bible mentions Satan being bound is Revelations. Chapter 20, verse 2, And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who's the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. It's God who binds Satan. So this whole concept seems a little shaky at best. It's outright false teaching at worst. It's made up. So it's either a negligent and dangerous misunderstanding of Scripture or it's intentional deception designed to lead us away from truth. Now, if we're going to experience spiritual warfare, and we are, we want weapons that work. We don't need distractions that might make us feel powerful because we can say these cool-sounding things but are utterly useless. We don't want to be staring down the barrel of Satan's AK-47 with a Nerf gun. Here's another common one. Again, not trying to offend anyone here, but just to show how we have to always be on guard, fighting for truth, even in small things. It can be so easy to veer away from it. This is the idea of praying for hedges. Perhaps you've heard someone pray a hedge of thorns around Satan and his demons to keep him away from a particular person. It's generally this, this hedge of thorns. It's kind of a more personal and specific prayer than just binding Satan in general. We're protecting a particular person or area. We might even pray a hedge of protection around someone. Or maybe both. We pray a hedge of protection around little Billy um, and also a hedge of thorns around, around him to keep Satan and his enemies away. So he's doubly hedged. That's possible. So logically, the first question we ought to ask is, what does that even mean? I mean, if I want to build a safe perimeter around someone, why not pray for a fort? Or a moat? Or an electric fence? Why not prison walls to, to keep them in or out or protected? Or Why a hedge? Well, because it comes from Scripture. It comes with biblical support, we're told. Hosea 2.6 and Job 1.10. Hosea 2.6 says, Therefore I will hedge, her, hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. Hedge of thorns right there. So to really understand what's happening here, what do we need? Context. We need context. Here's the context. Through Hosea, the Lord is trying to reach the Israelites and to... Show them their unfaithfulness. So he comes up with this kind of unusual object lesson. And the Lord asks Hosea to marry a prostitute who continues to be unfaithful to Hosea. Her name is Gomer. So in this poetic illustration, Hosea represents the Lord and Gomer represents Israel, the unfaithful. And in the, the whole book is kind of reads like poetry almost. Poetic language, Hosea is showing how the Lord continually provides for, cares for, loves, takes care of Israel, and how Israel keeps wandering away from the Lord. And so every now and again, the Lord has to punish Israel to help bring her back into line. 
That's the context. So what's the first thing you notice here? Well, that this really has absolutely nothing to do with spiritual warfare or battling Satan for control or power or anything else. Again, using poetic language, it helps paint a picture. But the verse in question here really is an indication of God's judgment trying to turn Israel around and bring them back. It's God's judgment. It's not a prescription for dealing with demons. This is about judgment, not protection. So this metaphoric hedge was constructed for God's people, but against them so that they would return to him. And finally, you'll see here that this is God implementing the hedge, not Hosea. There's no indication here that Hosea had any part of hedge building or hedge erecting or hedge trimming or anything to do with hedges. This seems to have nothing to do with Hosea and a hedge. Neither is there any indication here that this is something we can or should do. In Job, we see another mention of a hedge. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does, God fear, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him with him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he'll curse you to your face. So I mentioned this briefly last week. This, this is a, an amazing story of how the Lord offers up Job as a possible target for affliction from Satan himself. But Satan says, well, I appreciate the offer, Lord, but Job's not really a good target. You, you kind of have a hedge around him. And so we think, aha, there's the hedge right there. This glorious and magical hedge of protection from all demonic interference. But the dialogue doesn't end there. Satan goes on to say, he's got this hedge, you have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased. So this hedge in question here really seems to be symbolic. It's, it's metaphoric. It's an indication of the Lord's sovereign and general blessing in the life of Job. It's not used as a factual physical reference to spiritual protection, but as an indication of Job's favored status, perhaps, or, or his, his general blessing, the, 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 the general good gifts that the Lord gives us that flows from God to Job. So Satan says, well, chop down that hedge and let me at him. That's not what he says. He says, stretch out your hand, touch all that he has, and he'll curse you. So Satan is asking the Lord to remove the blessing Take your hand off of him for a little while. Remove all the blessing that you've given him. Take away all his stuff. So the hedge isn't really the issue. It is symbolic of the Lord's blessing. That's what has Satan stymied. There's no indication that Job ever prayed for a hedge of sovereign protection. It was a gift from a loving and gracious God. It's an indication of God's sovereignty. He provides for and protects his people. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we already share in some of this. You all have a whole lot more than you deserve. So we already experience this provision and protection. So maybe we should be asking the question, well, why aren't we dead already? Or why haven't our past sins come back to haunt us? Why haven't our bad financial decisions ruined us? Why hasn't our spouse figured out the frauds that we are yet and left us? I mean, we... Why are we experiencing this reasonably good life? Because we kind of have this general blessing from the Lord also. We already have a hedge. That's just God's gift, his grace towards his creation. So, again, the reference to the hedge here is not connected to demonic possession. It's quite the opposite, really. It's a reference to God's blessings in the lives of his creation. And certainly the presence of God's blessing does limit the power of Satan's attacks. I mean, Satan can only do what God allows him to do. But that's always true. And we don't need any mystical words or hedge prayers to make that happen. Now, we can and should pray for God's continued blessings for people. We can and should pray for God's continued 
strength in our own life to follow his will and be obedient. We can and should pray for the Lord's protection against the schemes of the devil, for wisdom, for discernment. But frankly, a hedge is not going to keep the devil away from us. And just because we can cite references to the same word used in two different verses, that doesn't mean we're free to derive some nebulous, ritualized, special prayer of authority. These examples we have of, of prayer topiary are descriptive. They're not prescriptive. Now, if you have ever prayed for a hedge of any kind, it's not a sin as far as I can tell. I don't believe you've grieved the Holy Spirit. But remember, what we're fighting for here is truth. And if we start to err, even just a little bit, just on a little point, and accept these small mistruths or these small misapplications, the trajectory long-term does not bode well. At some point down the line, we start to buy into bigger mistruths and bigger misapplications, and these little errors give the devil an opportunity. It gives him a foothold. We need to fight for truth. So here's another one, because I'm just offending people right and left. Let's do one more good one. Let's talk about hexes, or what is more commonly referred to as generational curses or generational sins. This idea has actually gained some significant relevance in our culture lately. Over the last year or so, in the heat and the aftermath of the Black Lives Matter protests and the riots last year, there were a number, many church leaders in the U.S., who bought into the idea that America has been cursed to some degree by the stain and sin of slavery, which occurred generations ago. And they went on to suggest that we'll never break free from this curse until we call out this sin and we repent of the sins of our forefathers. We're under this generational curse. I mean, more than a few national evangelical leaders made public statements to this effect. And then it kind of grew from there. It kind of took on a life of its own. Some even went so far as to teach that until we confess, and until we confess, the, confess of this sin of slavery, that Satan has a legal hold on us. I don't even know what that means. I mean, we all know about attorneys, but they're not all Satan. What does it even mean he has a legal hold on us? Or then we, we, we take this generational curse idea and we sprinkle a little critical race theory on top and we're told that our unwillingness to repent is actually an exercise in white privilege. So that now not only are we generationally cursed sinners, but we're also just horrible people because of something that occurred hundreds of years ago. So let's just say for the record... Slavery is bad. It is wrong. It has always been wrong. And yet we know from history, it has always been. Because sinful people commit sinful acts. So I'm not convinced that we need to admit that the U.S. was any more egregious than any other country. In fact, I think we could make a powerful argument that it was individual Christians and the church that led to the abolition of slavery in the U.S. Because we believe we're all created in the image of God. We should treat each other accordingly. But many bought into this deception that their image was superior to someone else's image and they made them slaves. And some even twisted scripture, as we're seeing, to bolster those beliefs. But are we all cursed as a result of those actions that happened hundreds of years ago? Now, the primary basis for this teaching is found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So there, there it is. I mean, there's the idea that kids are going to be punished for the sins of their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and, let's see, four generations, grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great, triple great-grandparents, you're on the hook for what they did. Unless, of course, the kids 
renounce and repent for on behalf of their parents. Now, then we add the spiritual warfare component onto that, and some suggest that kids can actually inherit demons if their parents were involved in egregious sins like witchcraft or the occult. Some have even gone as far as to suggest that adoptive parents really need to be on the lookout for this because you could be bringing in demons into your house through these kids. In 1975, uh, a Christian author named Mark Brubeck wrote a book called The Adversary where he actually outlines, uh, provides a specific prayer for adopting parents to pray over their kids, to to, uh, renounce and rebuke any lurking evil spirits. Uh, there's a similar prayer that can be found in Neil Anderson's book, Release from Bondage, and it's all based on Exodus 25. So, is that what this means? In order for us to get a clearer picture of what's going on here, what do we need? Context. You'll notice that verse 5 right there ends with a comma. So it actually begs us for more context. So we're going to go back a verse and then go forward to verse 2. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And all of a sudden we go, okay, that's a little bit better. Now you probably recognize that this is part of the Ten Commandments. Right? These are instructions given to God's chosen, set-aside covenant people. You shall have no other gods before me. Meaning, not just uh, the, the worship of false gods, but even failure to worship the one true God. And for those who refuse to worship the one true God, they're going to feel the Lord's wrath for generations. And why? Because they hate him. And his wrath does not fade over time. If you hate God, you're going to feel God's wrath. So, there, the Lord puts multi-generational curses on people. Except after verse 5 comes verse 6, which again, the false teachers conveniently leave out. But, but, it's a big but, I will show steadfast love to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So what we're, what we're being given here is, is a comparison. This is kind of classic Hebrew-style writing of comparing two different things. We have those who hate God versus those who love God. Those who hate God are going to have iniquity visited upon them. Those who love God, they're going to be shown steadfast love. So rather than administering a blanket curse on the poor grandkids of reprobate, reprobate sinners, the Lord, I think, is doing two things here. Number one, he's saying, okay, you have options. You can hate me, or you can love me. And if you hate me, here are the consequences. Here's the trajectory of sin. When parents hate God, their kids are more likely to hate God. That, that sin is passed on to the kids. I mean, we know this is true for alcoholism, right? Children of alcoholics are more likely to become alcoholics themselves. Children of divorce are more likely to be divorced than children whose parents haven't divorced. This is just how life works. We, we pass these things along. But there's that but there. But these patterns can be changed. These patterns can be broken. We can choose a different outcome. Because your parents were occultists doesn't mean you have to be. It doesn't mean you're demon-possessed. This text has nothing to do with spiritual warfare or demonology. Nothing. But it tells us that if you give your life to Jesus Christ, you automatically move from the God-hating, cursed side of the equation to the God-loving, non-cursed, actually blessed side of the equation. But what about if you're only in the second generation? You know, my parents play with a Ouija board. I'm only second generation. I've got to prepare my great-grandkids so they can... No! You're not locked into this pattern of behavior. Jesus can change your life and your destiny right now. Not a generation or two down the road. 
So the whole premise of this teaching is wrong. Plus, the rest of Scripture says the exact opposite. We will all answer for our own sins. There's a whole chapter on this in Ezekiel. Ultimately, it says in Ezekiel 18, verse 20, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Ah, but the great spiritual warriors never seem to get to this verse. It's much more dramatic to kick out demons that may or may not even be there. So we can grieve. We can probably, we should even grieve over the mistakes of generations past. But we're not required to repent of them. We didn't do them. We can grieve and learn from the mistakes of the past, but we're not going to have to answer for those sins. We're not cursed as a result of them. But while Satan's got us busy worrying about the sins of our grandfather, he's still whispering in our ear all the things he wants us to do. It's a distraction. Now, in the grand scheme of things, all these examples I've gone through here, they're just really small, smallish examples of scriptural error. But if our concern is for truth, then we need to understand that even small errors now can lead to bigger errors down the road. When we don't verify, when we don't square things with Scripture in the little things, then it's unlikely we're going to do it for some of the bigger things, too. And when we don't do that, we can easily be led along, led astray by smooth-talking, slick-haired, crafty, false teachers. Or even blonde-haired, frantic false teachers. And then the church can become susceptible to things like Caleb, you ready for audio? I'm starting video. We don't want to miss a word of this. It's gold. No, that's all right. Can we start it again? There, I'm going to start it again. Did you find it? Strike and 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 strike until you have victory. For every enemy that is aligned against you, let there be that we would strike the ground for you will give us victory, God. I hear a sound of abundance of rain. I hear a sound of victory. I hear a sound of shouting and singing. I hear a sound of victory. I hear a sound of an abundance of rain. I hear a sound of victory. I hear a sound of an abundance of rain. I hear a sound of victory. The Lord says it is done. The Lord says it is done. The Lord says it is done. For I hear victory, 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 victory in the quarters of heaven. In the quarters of heaven. Victory, 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 victory. For angels are being released right now. Angels are being dispatched right now. Hamanda ata ata raka teda baka sanda ata ambo osa kata rite eke banda ata rike didi ashata for angels have even Dash been dispatched from Africa, right now. Africa, right, now. Africa right now. Africa right now. Africa right now. Africa right now. From Africa right now. They're coming here. They're coming here. In the name of Jesus from South America. They're coming here. They're coming here. They're coming here. They're coming here. From Africa. From South America. Angelic forces. Angelic reinforcement. Angelic reinforcement. Angelic reinforcement. Fika hata anda ata ora bata rata anda eke eke manda rasata. For I hear the sound of victory. 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 That's just hard to watch. And I just want to point out for the record here, that was President Trump's spiritual advisor, Paula White. Now, Paula gives us kind of this full spiritual warfare package here. She's got prophetic insights. We've got territorial angels fighting territorial demons. She's given us repetitious sayings, repeated repetitiously in a repeated style to make sure we're convinced of her insight. We have these trance-like rhythmic cadences, so we start to feel, you know, just feel. And lots and lots of emotion. 
I mean, she's so worked up. She even has her own cowboy walking behind her back and forth, just in case she falters at some point. And all of that is based on, well, I don't know what. It's not scripture. We have no scriptural indication that there are angels assigned to, much less being dispatched from Africa or South America or Benton City or anywhere else. But you start to see at the end, you can see people in the audience, and she's getting people worked up, and they're feeling pretty emotional. They're feeling pretty good about this. They're feeling spiritually powerful, perhaps. Amen. And they're going to follow her in whatever crazy direction she decides to go. I mean, it doesn't seem like there's a Berean fact checker in the bunch. I know you want one more. We'll exercise judgment right now. Because we have... In the name of Jesus. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Standing in the office of the prophet of God, I execute judgment on you, COVID-19. I execute judgment on you, Satan. You destroyer. You killer. You get out. You break your power. You get off this nation. I demand judgment on you. I demand. I demand. I demand a vaccination to come immediately. Yes. I call you done. I call you done gone. You come down from your Amen. place of authority, destroyer. You come down and you crawl on your belly like God commanded you when he put his foot on your head in the Garden of Eden. You will destroy through COVID-19. No more! No more. No more. It no more. is finished. finished. It is over. And the United States of America is healed and well Thank you. again. Saith the mighty Hallelujah. Spirit. Glory. Glory. Peace, who is also the Prince of War, the Lord Jesus Christ. When- That's enough. So let's just be brutally honest here, shall we? That is not spiritual warfare, that is spiritual theater. FYI, this demand for a vaccine now and this demand for an end to COVID and demonic oppression was from March of 2020. So fortunately, Kenneth Copeland saved us a whole year of misery. So it's these people, and sadly, many, many more like them, these false teachers who are telling us that we need to rebuke Satan. We need to do spiritual mapping in our towns. We need to practice contemplative prayer. We need to bind Satan and, and interview demons and even exercise demons and, and take care lest we don't become demon-possessed ourselves. And this is all based on emotion and experience. Or as I like to say, feelings and greed. It's not based on scripture. Now, there are legitimate questions that need to be addressed, and we're going to deal with some of those more next week, what spiritual warfare really is. But there are some legitimate questions. Uh, the, the, the New Testament records several examples of demon possession. It's a real thing. We're not denying that. But those examples all point out that Jesus cast out demons without, apparently, marathon rebuking sessions, as did the apostles, although we're told very little about those encounters, with one or two exceptions. Which is interesting. There's, there's 18 verses in the New Testament that talk about casting out demons. One or two of them because they couldn't. And you would think, of all of the writing in the New Testament, if our job is to regularly, repeatedly cast out demons, you'd think there'd be some special incantation or secret prayer or exotic ritual provided for us to expel all the demons that we're dealing with on a regular, ongoing, daily basis. Scripture would make it clear for us. 
could it be it's not quite as pervasive as we're led to believe? I don't know. Some also suggest that Christians need to be aware of becoming possessed or demonized themselves. And I can't use the expression that comes to mind here, but it is bovine-related. And I would just say this. If you're worried about a Christian becoming demon-possessed, if you are a Christian and you're worried about becoming demon-possessed, then read Colossians 1.13 or 1 Corinthians 6.19 and 20 or 1 John 4.4. 4. And you will find that if the Holy Spirit indwells you, there's no way you have a demon squatter. It's not possible. But do you see the irony here? And do you see how they try to misguide and mislead? These false teachers tell us on one hand that God is sovereign, he's all-powerful, Jesus is more powerful than anything, but then they say, but got to watch out for demons or they're going to move in. They can't both be true. Which means maybe they don't really believe that God is all-powerful and sovereign. And we're going to see next week in more detail that the primary method prescribed for dealing with Satan is to resist him. Not cast him out. So any argument we hear to the contrary is based on someone's made-up pseudo-scriptural revelation or their experience or an outright lie for profit. And we should be careful. We need to be careful. In an age when evil is clearly advancing, in an age when men have become futile in their thinking, when foolish hearts are being darkened, when as a culture we exchange the truth of God for a lie then as the church, as the body of believers in Christ Jesus, more than ever, we need to cling to the truth. Not to our emotions or someone else's, not based on our experience or anyone else's, but to the truth of God as revealed in his word. This word, we're told, is a lamp for our feet. It's a light for our path. So if you're feeling the darkness move in, turn on the light. Spend more time here. You don't need to be able to rebuke Satan. You need to believe in the one who has already defeated him. So let's be aware of the devil's schemes. Let's be diligent and discerning for our own spiritual state and be prepared to help and encourage others who are struggling. But let's keep the focus on the author of life, the creator of all things, who keeps us all in the palm of his hand, who provides and protects us out of his great love for us. We've got little to fear from anyone else. Let's pray. Lord, what a treat it is to spend time in your word. Uh, even though it's a little depressing having to deal with all of the false information, the, the bad teaching, the, the, the lies that are out there. But this is nothing new. Uh, Paul dealt with false teachers in his day. It has always been around. It's always been true for every generation. So Lord, I pray for us that you help, uh, help us grow in our desire for truth, help us grow in maturity, help us grow in discernment. Uh, give us a desire to spend more time in your word. Lord, that's, so we can better be prepared to deal with the schemes of the devil. Give us an awareness of how you are moving in our life on a regular, hourly basis. Help us know that we're not fighting this fight alone, that we have the power of the Holy Spirit living in us as followers of Jesus Christ. We thank you for that gift. We thank you for the gift of eternal life for all of us. And we praise you for being an almighty, sovereign God. In Jesus' name, amen.